In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, now is the time. The epistle starts with this glorious phrase, now is the time. Now is the time of our salvation. The Greek word in this context is a special phrase that we don't usually use. When you look at your watch, you, in the Greek phrase, you look at your chronos, the chronicles. You look at a circular time, a time that marches on, a time that you cannot get back. And when in Greek you see the word chronos, you know that you cannot get that time back. But in this particular epistle, and many times in the Gospels, the phrase that is used is keros or keron. And in this particular time, and in this particular epistle, God tells us, or Jesus Christ, and the epistle is proclaiming keron, the perfect time, an eternal time. Now is the time of our salvation. Not a particular time, not a time that is lost, not a time that we cannot get back, but a perfect time, God's time. In the rituals of the church, Kronos is distinguished from Keros by the movement of the deacon. Watch him carefully next time Father Eugene is serving because he can only move in one direction. If those who are of a middle European extraction will know how a cuckoo clock works, a cuckoo clock or sometimes there, I can't remember exactly what city it is, but there is a clock in a middle European city that has a man and a woman and they appear out of the door to ring the bell and they appear out of this door on the clockwork and they ring the bell of the hour and then they go in that door. And the deacon does the same. He only ever comes out of this door and processes in an anti-clockwise direction and enters in the, on your hand, the right-hand door is known as the left-hand door because, of course, we always mark the shape of the building of the church according to the chair standing at the easternmost part of the church from God's left hand. Time is marked anti-clockwise, marking the reversal of the sin of Adam. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, we have reached the most important part of the Divine Liturgy. 39 steps, I believe, we have made over a long period of time as we have made this exploration of the Divine Liturgy step by step. I wonder how many of you have been here each time I have made that step. How many of you were here at the start of that journey? How many of you can remember each of the steps that we've made? Manchka has just put her hand up. I think she can remember blow by blow account of each of the steps we've made. I didn't plan it to be 39 steps, not quoting an English lit book and certainly not pointing to the 40 years, 40 days in the desert. 
but 39 steps through the liturgy we have made, this procession of the great gift of life that we have made to get to the point of what? To receive the greatest gift of all, the greatest gift of all that is possible. Let us listen to again the Troparian for the resurrection in tone seven. By your cross you destroyed death. To the thief you opened paradise. For the myrrh bearers you changed weeping into joy. You commanded your disciples, O Christ God, to proclaim that you are risen, granting the world great mercy. In the Contachion, in the same tone, the dominion, the tyranny, the terror of death can no longer hold men captive, for Christ has descended, shattering and destroying its powers. Hell is bound, while the prophets rejoice and cry, the Saviour has come to those in faith. Enter, you faithful, into resurrection. My dear brothers and sisters, we should sing this with joy every single day. Not just fleetingly as you drag yourselves sleepily into church while the choir, reduced to one, tries to sing this out loud. This should be our daily hymn. By your cross you have destroyed death. The dominion of death can no longer hold us captive. Satan is bound. And we have arrived at this perfect time a time that is particular to us, but all of time has arrived at this point. God's perfect plan has arrived through the participation of the perfect person through the mother of God. Time and space merges at this point in the incarnation of Christ God. And we have the joy and privilege to stand here today in Kronos, in a particular time. But we can also stand in Keros, in all time, and witness to this event. To stand here ready to take communion. And the gospel allows us to understand what is going to happen. Something way beyond our imagination. Jesus, at this point in the Gospels, understood to be a preacher, understood by his disciples, by Simon Peter, by the sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee. Their nicknamed Sons of Thunder. Understood to be a preacher. Jesus understood to be a good preacher. Such that he borrows these two boats after a night's fishing. So let's be clear about what's precisely going on here. The fishing in the Lake of Gennesaret is done by night. Two boats. A net hung between the two boats. And then lamps hung to attract the fish. And you drop the nets so the fish follow the light and you drop the nets to capture the poor dumb fish as they follow the light Jesus in the day when the men and women are tending the broken nets and cleaning the nets of all the debris 
no fishing trolleys in those days, but seaweed and mess and filth, and the nets have to be cleaned. So during the day in the morning before the sun gets too hot, the nets are being cleaned. And Jesus gets Simon Peter and the sons of Zebedee to push their boats out into the lake so Jesus can preach to a great crowd, bigger than today. And then after Jesus has finished preaching, it's getting rather hot, one imagines, so everyone drifts away and Jesus has finished preaching. And he says to them, cast your nets out. Let's go a bit further out into the water and cast your nets. Jesus is the son of a carpenter. He's not a fisherman. What a dumb thing to say. Do you imagine what the fisherman would be sinking at this point. Imagine the sound of rolling eyes at this point. Really? I've been fishing all night. I am ten, have been fixing my nets all morning. It's now getting hot. The sun is now baking hot on this Lake Gennesaret. I have not yet eaten. Please, really? You're now going to get me to go and fish. The sun is hot. I have no lamps. My net, my whole way of fishing is designed such that the fish follow my lamps. Please, Jesus, you are the son of a carpenter. Really? Follow me. Just follow me. Just push your boats out. Okay, okay. Maybe there was a, a humouring. This is before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, before they knew and understood, before they had seen the resurrection. And they pushed their boats out and let their nets down into the hot water. The sun is shimmering. And yet, what happens? The nets are heaving with fish. Not just Jesus' boat, but the second boat. So much so that the two boats are beginning to sink. This is not just a miracle, but this is a miracle that brings Simon to faith and James and John to faith. From henceforth, you'll not just catch fish, Jesus says to them, but you will catch men. You will catch all of humanity. You'll find me the text, Peter, which one is it? We come ready to take communion. We have step by step prepared ourselves. The traparia of the church every Sunday proclaim the resurrection of Christ, the destruction of evil, the binding of hell, so that we might receive God that we might become fishers of men.
brothers and sisters, Paul writes to the church in Corinth. As workers together with him, we beseech that you do not receive this grace of God in vain. Don't come to receive the grace of God without it turning into something that is reasonable, that turns into action. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. But what happens? In what conditions are we expected to achieve and receive our salvation? Well, Paul gives a very long list and a complex list. Because salvation is not simple and easy. Impatience and affliction, necessity, distress, imprisonment, in tumult, in labour, in being attentive, watchings, in fasting, in pureness, but also by knowledge, by long-suffering, in other words, patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit alone, by love unfeigned, through the word of power, by the power of God alone, by the armour of righteousness, on the right hand and on the left, by honour, but also through dishonour, by good report, but also through evil report, through deceivers, but yes, also through unknown truth, but as well as through known truths, through dying and yet through living, by being chastened, but yet not being killed by being sorrowful, but yet also rejoicing, by being poor, but yet also making people rich, by having nothing, but yet possessing all things. But yet as Christians, what we tend to want to do, or at least what the devil tries to give us, is one way, one way of thinking. A simplistic understanding of faith. That we so focus in on one or two things. Or one journey or one way of thinking. Because that's all the devil has left. Is one idea. Selfishness. When our ideas and our mind and our focus narrows on to one or two things, we must catch ourselves and remind ourselves that this is the devil's thinking. Because the world of the devil is narrow and tiny and limited. Because that is all that he has left. There is no space in God's kingdom for the devil because God's kingdom is wide and broad and loving by your cross you have destroyed death to the thief you have opened paradise to he who even didn't manage to repent wasn't a member of the church didn't make his confession, didn't make his communion, didn't follow all the rules, but was only able on the cross to make his confession, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. To him was open paradise. 
to him, to his disciples, he commanded to proclaim that Christ is risen. We have finally made this long journey. Some of us a very short journey. I am reminded of the homily of St. John Chrysostom, which is proclaimed at the beginning of the Paschal Liturgy. Some of us have toiled uh, every single of the 39 steps that we have taken over the last two and a half years, dwelling at each of the points before we have made our communion. And some have stumbled and tripped their way in at the last minute. Some have, through their own hard work, think that they have made themselves worthy. And some stumble and trip, thinking themselves unworthy. But ultimately, none of us are worthy to receive communion. But all of us, by God's grace, by Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, all of us are made worthy, are seen to be worthy by God. The gift has been presented by Christ alone. Each one of us must reach out to accept the gift. And how do we do that? We do that by saying the words, I believe, O Lord, and I confess before we receive communion. That you are in truth the Christ, the Son of the living God. We make a confession of belief, of dogma. The Son of the living God who came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief, the first. We make a confession of faith about Jesus Christ, that he is not a prophet, that he is not a human being, that he is not a kind healer or a preacher, but he is the son of a living God, the living God, the only one and true God. I believe also that this is indeed your most pure body, and this is indeed your precious blood, that the gifts that is presented before you is not merely blood, uh, bod, um, wine and bread, but is also the precious body and blood of our Lord God and Saviour Jesus Christ. We also ask for forgiveness. Therefore, I pray you, have mercy upon me and forgive me my transgressions. A point that many priests forget when they insist that people make confession and then make confession again. We are always called to make our confession, individual confession, as well as con confession together. So when the priest says it, say it to yourself, say it aloud. Say it deep in your heart. Don't just say the words, but say it with your heart. Have mercy upon me. And forgive me my transgressions, my sins, voluntary and involuntary, those that I have said with my words, those that I have said with my deeds, my actions, those that I have done because I know that I have done them, those that I have done because I make mistakes in my ignorance. 
That covers off pretty much everything, does it not? Things that I forget to do. And count me worthy to partake without condemnation. Note the way in which that sentence is phrased. It does not say, and now I am worthy to take communion. I have said these words, and now I am perfect and clean and pure, and I am worthy to take communion. No. It says, now, Lord, count me worthy. See that I am worthy. Lord, confirm that you count me. You decide, Lord, that I am worthy. Count me worthy to partake without condemnation of your most pure mysteries. To remit my sins, in other words, to eliminate my sins, and for eternal life. Not just to remove my sins, but to lead me to eternal life. And then the second part of that prayer. Of your mystical supper, your eternal supper, not just one supper, that last supper, but a supper that stands in care on, in eternal time. Receive me to that supper, not just in remembrance of a historical supper, but a supper that happens throughout eternity. Not a supper that happens just here in this place in Northampton, but a supper that happens across all time and all space, in all places. The same supper that happens in Moscow, in St. Petersburg, in Bucharest, in Athens, in every place of God's kingdom. I will not speak of your mystery to your enemies, nor will I give you a kiss like Judas, but like the thief on the cross, I will confess you Remember me, Lord, in your kingdom. This is our supper for the communicants. We will not betray you to those who hate you. We will not confess your mystery to those who hate us. I do not take this communion, the last phrase, turning it into plain English. I don't wash, wish to take this communion for my judgment or my condemnation, but for the healing of my soul and my body. That is our intention. That is our prayer. That is why we wish to receive communion. That we may be healed of our sinfulness. It is the medicine of life. Now is the time of our salvation. Let us not put that salvation off. Let us not delay that salvation. It is precious. It is eternal life. It is the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it is difficult to perceive it. Even when we have taken communion, it is difficult to perceive and to see and to feel and to understand the kingdom of God. But if we hold ourselves at a distance and to say, I am not worthy, 
Lord, I cannot imagine what we do. It's like we're sick. And we say, you know, I'll wait until I'm better and then I'll go to the doctor. It's like having come off our bicycle playing and we've broken our leg. And we'll go, it's okay, I'll, I'll go to the hospital when it's healed. Can you see the craziness of that logic? I'll wait until I'm perfect before I receive communion. I'll wait until I've made myself worthy. There is no logic, no sense. Because when the priest comes out with the chalice, Jesus Christ, the living God, has sacrificed his life and broken the gates of hell and stands there waiting for you to heal you, to allow you to enter into everlasting life. The gift waits for you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.